Hello, welcome. This is the Transportation Management Podcast, episode 13. Today's topic is the Business Object Processing Framework, or in short, BOPF, and um, I'm Thomas from the Freight Order Management Team. Yeah, I'm Bern from the, no, from the Order Management Team, Thomas. Yes. yes. Uh, me too, uh, I'm also from the Order Management Team. And uh, today I will ask questions and maybe I will also answer a bit. I'm Florian, I'm cooperative student at SAP and I'm also going to ask some questions. Yeah, I'm Leon and as Florian said, I'm also a student here at SAP and I will also try to ask some questions. Hello, I'm Jia Haoliang, I'm intern and I'm new at SAP and today I would like to ask some questions about uh, this topic. Bob. Um, hi, my name is uh, Vanessa. I'm a new colleague in the um, order management team and I work on developing. <laughs> hi, I'm Holger. I'm responsible for the performance topic within the GM project as well as uh, in extensibility. And yeah, let's see what Bob is all about. Hi, I'm Dirk, Dirk Schibler. Um, I'm developer in Septium, responsible for basis near topics. All of them. Hope to answer <laughs> most of the questions. <laughs> okay, so let's get started. What does BOP stand for? What does it mean, actually? Yeah, that's easy. I can just repeat the words from Thomas from the introduction. Yeah. Business Objects Processing Framework as BOP. And uh, the meaning behind it is you know, it's an um, application development framework. An application development framework means it's not just for uh, typing in some code and compile it and then to have a report or program running. You can model and operate whole applications like SubTM. Really? Good. Um, it's called BOP. Uh, maybe that's more a question we always run about. Or why do we always see BOBF in, in the TM context? Maybe just to. <laughs> it's, it's not a typo. The classical story. Yeah. Um, historical reasons are very simple. BOP was uh, founded in a, in a TM near product in EWM, but there they didn't call it BOP. BOP was called in by design. The famous SAP product, <laughs> and um, um, there it's uh, also the foundation framework, which is operating the whole system by design. And um, there they used the abbreviation BOPF, BOPF, Business Object Processing Framework. That yeah. sounds right. Yeah. And uh, we thought, okay, that's so cool. This framework. <laughs> we want to build also another application in the business suite. Business suite with B. Ah, not the business suite. That's right. <laughs> and uh, we were not able to to reuse it because it was in another Netweaver version, which was not available for us. And so we just copied the whole framework and uh, gave it another name. And because we were in a way a little bit successful, we were then allowed to make this official. And moved it into Netweaver, and uh, there we could not reuse the namespace Bob with P, and so we just choose Bob with B like Business Suite. 
but it's the same framework. It's a business suite Bob, so to say. Business yeah? suite Bob. Okay. That's that's the real official name. Yes. Oh, accidentally hit it. Good. <laughs> okay, so the idea is to build applications, and then I think also take a lot of standard tasks or so locking database accesses, etc., away from standard development, right? So that you. Yeah. Well, so what do we get out of the box if you, if you use it? Yeah, uh, very box? good. Right. Uh, in principle, we have a great framework here at SAP that's ABAP. With ABAP, you can do everything. And it's uh, not like C or Pascal or Assembler or so, where you have to uh, program everything from scratch. You get a lot of, of functionality out of the box just by this ABAP language. And both is now addressing all the um, open, always reappearing questions. Uh, how do I realize my buffer concept? Uh, meet a buffer concept at all. Um, why do I buffer? I read data from the database. Um, that's, by the way, also something that Bob is, is doing for us, the access to the database. Mm-hmm. Um, I read it from the database and buffer it somewhere. And then whenever Retrieving data, that's the Bob term, retrieve. You retrieve data via Bob. Which stands for reading, right? Reading data, you get it from the buffer. Mm-hmm. And only if it is not in the buffer, you address then the database and fetch it from there via the data access class. And um, how do I find data on the database? For that, we have queries. Um, in ABAP terms, it would be a select or, or SQL. Mm-hmm. Um, I select to the database, and then uh, how do we modifications to the data? When do we update the data in the buffer, and how do we bring the updated data from the buffer to the database? And um, transactional cycles, and whatever, all the questions you have always to answer before starting a new project, a new application. Okay, so that is what it takes. And I think it's also... Since it's a standardized model you work with, it also makes UI integration easier, right? So if I have to connect yes. my UI, so yes, how does sure. that work? Uh, sure. Perhaps we, we start just to explain how a business object looks okay. like. I may come later. We are here talking of a business objects processing framework, so the core parts are the business objects. And um, yeah, a business object is just a part of the application. Which is um, yeah, which which could be found also in the real world if you want so. So um, if you have something like a freight document, freight units, and so you could describe them with a business object. Um, or that was the way how we did it in, in TM. We see that freight orders and freight units and freight bookings they have a very big common part. So we call them transportation order as technical name, mm-hmm. and then just derive the uh, freight order object, the booking order object, and the freight unit object from this technical object, transportation order. I would propose uh, to go more into detail. We just go into the configuration UI of both okay. and open just the business object, the tour. Oops, I'm already there, yeah. <coughs> nearly. Yeah. Okay, so <clears throat> just to wrap it up, so a business object is kind of a a representation of a physical, not necessarily physical, but of an entity like a sales order. If I go away from TM, so that's something like a sales order, 
could be modeled as a business object, but also something like a product master or something. Yes. Is that right? A business partner. So in the, and, so, and maybe we have to always have to distinguish between the business object, which is a technical model, and then that business object instance, which is then that single sales order number 42. Exactly. Right. Okay. So the business object is the modeling of it, and then the instance is the actual sales order where you buy your TM with, for example. Okay. So let's have a look at uh, uh, one example business object. Okay. Maybe okay. let's pick randomly one. Oops. Let's take this one here, Tor. That looks nice. Okay, so I am so now currently we are in that business object uh, configuration UI, classical transaction uh, SCMTMS uh, slash no no BOBF slash yeah. conf underscore UI or short BOBF, right? Okay, so what is defined on business object? More than maybe we do it a bit TM specific here. I would suggest so maybe we focus on the parts <laughs> that we use and maybe we, we may be a bit short on unused uh, features, maybe. Huh? Okay. Yeah. But let's, okay. Let's perhaps start with the node structure. Node structure um, shows already we have here uh, some kind of structure. I call it always the skeleton of the business object. Um, with some muscles. Huh? We have here. A couple of nodes, uh, which are shown in the, in the configuration UI of Bob with uh, gray balls or bubbles. And these nodes represent, in most cases, a database table in behind. Or, a or part, an element of the business object. A part maybe. of the business object that is, that is modeled here. Um, every business object starts with a root node. What is a kind of header section of this business object? And it's a very good idea to call it also root. Uh, we, I think once we dared to uh, have a root node, node, which we call root node, and that was a bad idea because uh, there are some weird places where they assume that the root node is called root. So don't be too creative on that. So root node is root, always. I okay. <laughs> yeah, then uh, you see in this um, node structure section, um, we have there a kind of hierarchy. If you expand the, the second level, then you see it better. And this means we have really a, um, a hierarchy of nodes. So under this root node or header section, we have a lot of sub nodes. For example, we have here the item TR that are just order items, as the name says. Or we have... Uh, and that's there below the root node means they directly belong to the root. They are not assigned through something else, but it's direct child of that yeah. root node. Yeah. And then we have also something like stops or doc references, what we can see here, customs activities. They're directly related to this root level. Okay. And uh, under this sub-nodes, we can have further sub-nodes. For example, this item C code, the commodity codes on item level, or item doc references, item parties, which are assigned business partners. To this but they, item. they really only belong then to that specific item. So like if you, if you mm -hmm. understand it as instance, then it belongs to one item. Mm -hmm. All, then, then you have a couple, at least one, possibly more than one, um, item parties, for example, which belong to exactly one item. And one item belongs always to one root, but one root can have many items, of course. So you have there 
a hierarchy. We'll maybe later on see, um, talking about associations, how to define the cardinality between the different nodes. How many? I would have one, 42. Yeah. Or Perhaps we, we go directly to the to the associations. Then we leave or, or should we maybe node structure part. Or maybe we could also just start with what is really defined on the business object okay. level. Should okay, we, we can also do we see on the right-hand side. Yeah. yeah, is that okay? So I... Yes. Still there. So, what do I really, if I, I, I now build my uh, new business object, so what do I have to define really on header level first here, maybe? N not that, that that happens very often, but uh, uh, now that we talk about uh, the structure, maybe makes sense. So, yeah, what do we have here? So, okay, a name. Uh, and maybe one thing uh, very important for Bob is I think behind every element that we see here. There is a name, but also uh, a GUID, right? So everything, every element is, uh, I will come to that later, it also has a GUID name and that has some interesting implications to come about, uh, we'll talk about that uh, a bit later, right? So, yeah, sure. yeah always raw 16 GUIDs, so yeah. 16 bytes. Yeah. Okay, so what do we define here? So we, yeah, look. <laughs> yeah, it's a, very general um, definition, which is valid for the whole business object. So for every node, uh, we have here the business object name, which is here the tour transportation order, and a rough description that's just for us that we can read it. Um, then we have here an um, super business object. Uh, we are able to, to use inheritance. So we could define one super object and then derive several sub-business objects from that. We did this for business partners, for example, and derived from their customers and suppliers from the general business partner business object, for example. So the concept here is very similar to the ABAP or general in yeah. inheritance yeah. concept. You're just adding um, additional parts. You can't uh, really overwrite parts, but mm -hmm. you can add further okay. parts. Okay. So it's more an extension concept, not really an inheritance. Okay. Uh, then we have here a object category um, is also just semantic meaning, nothing uh, relevant for the runtime. Um, business process object just means we have here a kind of document, and then we transactional have data. Transactional data. We, at least we always use yeah. it for transactional data, right? Yeah. 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 And in addition, we have uh, something like uh, configuration objects for customizing dependent objects for reuse functionality. Text collections, attachment folders, something like that. Come to that later. We don't want to yeah. scare you from the beginning. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Master data objects, um, something like business partner, products, resources. Location. Um, and I think that is the important stuff. Yeah, I think uh, accidentally some of our objects were moved to metadata uh, object, which is also, I think, in our case, if we go back, yeah, uh, I think uh, it's customizing. I think they like correctly profiles, profiles, they should like be um, configuration objects, but something went uh, wrong in one update. I don't remember when. I think from 7.0 to uh, 8.0. Somewhere we lost our old assignment and accidentally they all were uh, metadata objects. But as this is not really important, uh, we didn't change that. Yeah. Yeah, the, the Bob colleagues from, from Basis, they um, changed the uh, configuration objects into, or they split it up into 
metadata objects and configuration objects. That was the point in time some objects moved into the metadata objects. Yeah. So it was just not totally clear to us why. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, Good. then uh, we come to the namespace that's just technical, SCMTMS for us, but could be also ZDS, for example, or whatever yeah. you would like to have. And um, then we can define here some some general settings, um, like this business object can be enhanced, what means that we can define enhancement objects um, from from our side, for example, for localization, we do this sometimes, yeah. or uh, partners could um, create enhancements on top of our business objects, we wish it, yeah. or even customers. And also... On enhancement objects, you can create further enhancements. So there's no limit. Yeah. I think and we come to that all enhancement section yeah. a bit more perhaps in detail later, later. Perhaps also in, a, in another session, we will see. Yeah, so later in time for sure. Yes. Let's see. <laughs> um, yeah, but the, the basic settings here. Okay. Yeah, then you define also if you have, uh, if Bob should also handle authorization checks for you, or if you want to do this on your own. Uh, I think this checkbox we have there because we have an own authorization object and uh, concept mm -hmm. in SubTM, and uh, but they would like to to handle it on their own. Okay, so basis. don't be scared if you. Okay, for those of you looking the, the video part of it as well. So we are currently looking into Tor business object and the flag uh, business object has authorization checks as off. Don't be scared. We do have authorization checks, but not within Bob. So uh, no panic. Yeah, the same is, is valid for uh, enterprise search, which might be enabled for, for, for example, finding uh, documents. Just by the idea? Sounds like a great idea. Yeah, I oh, will. Wow. <laughs> and then uh, if the business object is uh, for inheritance, is abstract, or if it is final, can't be inherited anymore, and, and so on. Yeah, this, I think, yeah, in the TM world, uh, I think all of our business objects can be enhanced and everything and else is the plan. Yes, yeah. yes. So we don't have um, two sophisticated settings here. Yeah, then we see as next in, in a section business object settings, um, which other general settings we have for this business object. And that is starting with a root node, very mm -hmm. important node. Here it is named and mm -hmm. it has to but be... Still. <laughs> It has to be root. <laughs> yes, still. As I you can come into problems. I still think so, yeah. Um, the problems are not coming directly from the framework itself, but we have a lot of satellites, additional add-ons on top of the framework, and they often count on root Good. and nothing else. Okay, then we have here a buffer class. That's a little bit misleading. Um, as said, the business object processing framework has also a buffer concept implemented. Mm -hmm. And this buffer concept um, is based on the nodes. So in principle, for every node, you have a buffer in behind. It can also happen that one buffer is responsible for many nodes. And um, all these node buffers are orchestrated by um, this buffer class, which is entered there on root level in the business object settings. So that is a buffer um, dispatcher. Maybe for those of you who maybe not knowing exactly what a buffer really does. So Dirk already mentioned that earlier. So basically the task is to have the different states of a certain element. For example, 
if I uh, have a an item, yeah, I have my product item, and I change the product uh, ID, then in somewhere later, um, you need to identify, okay, that field has been changed. And for that, you need the database state and the current state, and maybe also the last valid state within your transaction. Yeah? So that is the, some examples of versions of that same item that you might need to look at, right? And this buffer class is taking care of that one. So if I look into the into my buffer, I can see the current state. So what is the latest version of my node? But I can also see what is the database state, which is, for example, important for the database update. Do I have to do an update at all? And if yes, which instance? Uh, but also what was the last valid state I had so that I can, for example, roll something back. So yeah, that's that a is, nice summary of the functionality of the standard buff buffer. Yeah. But as you can see, um, that's an input field. Yeah. Uh, if you go into edit mode in the configuration UI, you can also enter any other ABAP class, which is implementing the BOF interface slash BOBF, IF, FRW, buff, or buffer. It is, it is buffer. FRW buffer, yeah. Yeah. This interface has to be implemented, and there are methods included for retrieving data, for um, uh, for modification, modifi modifying data, and I think that transfer states. Uh, yeah, that's that's the detail. It's not necessarily in there. Is yeah. the buffer class then also responsible for accessing the database, or is oh. there some level below after the buffer? There is a level below. We see it here as well. If you look to the bottom of the screen, there is a section called Datenzugriff, Data Access, <laughs> which is not translated. And this Data Access class, which is contained there, um, is mind. called by the buffer automatically if the buffer is um, is accessed with a request. Please okay. give me data with the following keys, with a key list. And if the buffer knows, okay, he never answered this request yes. and he doesn't know these keys, it is requesting or it is forwarding the request to the data access class. And yep. this data access class is, however, trying to answer this request from the persistency. It might be a database, might be a HANA system, might be a file system, whatever. So basic principle okay. is always, uh, first of all, check the buffer if something is there already <laughs> yeah. concerning the request that you sent. Yes. And if you, if you don't find it in the buffer, go to the database and search there. But it's okay. a separate definition. How you access your persistency, that is defined completely independent from the buffer again. Yeah, okay. You have interfaces for that as well, which is... Uh, you have buff data access. The other one, lib data access, maybe as well. So typically in TM context, you always, for the data access class, I think you always find that class duct table. We had some special versions of that for historical reasons, but I think current, normally you, for the data access class and the way we communicate with the database, you will always find that of class, except for? Except for some master data. Except for some, ah, ah, yeah, we come to that. Yeah, we have, we have some, some business objects which are read-only business objects for master data, uh, like locations or product master. Uh, for that, mm -hmm. we have own transactions uh, from, from SCM basis. 
which have to be used to maintain this uh, data objects and to read them, we are using business objects. Uh, and there we have sometimes overwritten the buffer to fetch the data via the um, specific object specific API product or, or location master API we have, or we overwrote the data access class. That are the two possibilities we have. Depends from the buffer mechanisms which are already there for these objects. Okay. Okay. And that one, that access class here that we define on, on header or on, on business object level, that is only the default for the nodes. And if we look into the nodes later, you will see you can redefine it on node level. That's just the default value yes. here. That's yeah. also important yeah. to know. Okay. So we already defined a buffer and we defined the database access. That's very good. Yeah, then we come to the constants interface, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, famous constants interface. And important. And yeah, what is it? Yeah, it's the table of contents, if you want so. Ah. Um, if you look into it, then you see that it's really necessary because the page numbers are really long <laughs> and hard to read. So in that constants interface, every Bob element uh, has its home, right? Yes. Or is it the home? No. Yeah, it's a name. It. A name. Click into it. Yeah. Here, that's how it looks like. We see here. Um, if you go to the to the notes, for example. Ah. Uh, so within that, for those of you on the audio track only, so now we are in the constants interface, and uh, we want to go and look into the notes. Begin of a uh, note. No, it's just no note. Then no. Ah, okay. Maybe I should not start at current line. And I not only on current page. Just searching in the search yeah. results. Yeah. So just, just go back. To Which is not bad, right? Yeah, yeah. Go back one further. No, shouldn't be here. No. Oh, a lot of notes. Now maybe we go back and... Yeah, and what we see here are all the note names which are contained in this uh, business object, SCMTMS Tor, um, alphabetically sorted and um, typed with a type Bob for OBM node key and a value. And the value is the raw 16 GUID. And you absolutely need to remember every single GUID you see here. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and uh, this constant interface is just um, to, to make the GUIDs readable for us. And uh, they have a schema, a fixed schema, how they are built and organized. And that is for the, for the nodes. All nodes are covered in the constant section SC node and then the name of the node from the model. So is it right to say that the GUID is used by the framework for technical reasons to identify uniquely a node and to know when it has to work with that specific node? And we will see later on maybe that when you try to implement something in your other coding, try to access a node or something, you can always reference this constant rather than the technical GUID which represents this node. From a more technical perspective, it makes it way more easier for you as developer to read the coding knowing what you're doing with which node. And to write it. Yes. And to write it, of course. 
So Excellent, in yeah. theory, it would be possible to have two nodes with the same name, but different GUIs. Theoretically, yes. In theory, yes. I think yes, and that's fortunate. Unfortunately, that's not only pure theory. Within the same business object, I think this is prevented. Yeah. But what is really dangerous, more on our side, but also if you enhance it, if you have two systems, uh, in our case, two releases of TM, and if you go and create a new node manually in one business object and you create that same node, it's a, okay, you think you create the same node um, in, in the other system, let's say now in 8.1 manually, then it will create another GUI. The GUI is a GUI and if you create a new one or draw a new one, you get a new one. And so for us, it looks exactly the same. For Bob, it's two totally independent objects, instances. Yeah, and that uh, that's why we okay that's more on our side, but that is the node or every element is really identified by that GUI T and only by that. So that that so you have some special reports to bring things back in sync uh, uh, just in case, but that's really something that should not happen. You should always do that with transports, um, etc. With the tools uh, to to sync the business objects through different versions. Otherwise. You think you have the same node, and it's also fun debugging because, of course, the constant everything looks the same, but it is different, and um, yeah, that's important to know. So, yeah, and perhaps to to extend this a little bit, um, there are also elements which are not directly visible in the UI or identifiable that they have an own GUID in behind. Sometimes they are just checkboxes. So if you're changing checkboxes, it, it can happen that you get a new GUID in backend. In, in, in the background. Basically every then, element. Yeah. Then it is really, really nasty to find out why this little checkbox is always active in the customer system or not active. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you don't have to remember yeah, the GUID, but you have to remember that behind everything there's a GUID, and that is what it identifies with. Yeah. It's not the name. But um, the systematic behind this constant is always SC node and then the node name. What means if you want to retrieve now data from the item TR node, for example, uh, then you have not to look up here in the constants interface how the GUID is. You can just write constants interface of Tor, SC node, item TR. And then you have the right GUID, technically. Yeah. And you can read it. You can also use auto so completion then. You never need to look up something in no. the constant interface. You should similar you know. to JavaScript or Java when you have an object, you hit the point and then you get the methods and then you get maybe some sub methods and so on. It, it allows you to have a hierarchy of, of attributes which identify a single element of the conflict. Just to what give you an idea, uh, maybe I just opened, I went to the end of the interface, so you see it's quite a long uh, yeah. interface. Every element has its GUID, so we have here, I mean, it's not exactly the number of elements we have, but I think it's in the in the thousands, the elements that we really have for one business object here. That, uh, to give you the dimensions, 16,000 lines, 15,000 lines. Okay, there's some command line, but it's already reduced. Um, it, it was this warm formatting in the past. So, and that's why we also can only deliver it, uh, or it's generated in the customer system because uh, we cannot deliver uh, interfaces longer than 9,999 lines, and we are well beyond that. Okay. So that's a technical restriction from the Weaver. Mm. But it's not a problem because that interface, when you update a business object, and that also includes applying nodes, 
um, then it updates the um, um, constant interface automatically. Meanwhile, I mean, for those of you that have worked with 6.0, you might have some painful memories of manually generating constant interfaces. That is history, fortunately. Okay. What else can we define? Yeah, what else? Um, what belongs else to, to an application that you develop that's a rocking concept? Yeah. So, um, as soon as you have a, a bigger, larger application, you have to avoid that uh, two, two users, system users, are able to, to access or to change at least the same document at the same time. And this is uh, done with enqueues. And this log behavior can also be defined here on the business object level of every business object. And that is in this case that we want to have, I think, only update logs. Can that be? If you open the uh, drop-down box, yeah, we have here the choice to define that we want to have logs always in the dialog process. Dialog process means you have the UI open, you are changing things, you are communicating with uh, with the backend, and then sometime, some somewhere in time, you press the save button, and then your dialog process ends. And um, with the save, you enter the update process in which data might be posted to database. And that would be then the update log. And dialog and update log means that you have the log in your dialog process. And that is then uh, taken over into the update process. And then both logs are deleted automatically when the update process ends. Yeah, and then we have here some, some specialties, optimistic log and update log. That means you can have a kind that's also standard NetWeaver um, business um, uh, technology. Mm -hmm. uh, optimistic logs mean um, you're creating logs which are not directly um, preventing, avoiding, preventing mm -hmm. that, that users are starting to edit one document in parallel. They get exclusive logs as soon as one presses the save button, or does really a, say, uh, a change. Modify really a as change. soon as it modifies, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And in this moment in time, um, all other optimistic logs from other users are deleted, vanish from the system, and this leads to that the uh, application or that this uh, mode, the session of these users. Um, can recognize that uh, their log got lost and that they have possibly to reload their buffers because they was they were changed by some parallel sessions. And typically, yes, they have to reload uh, their buffer because you don't know what was the change. Maybe the whole element could be yeah. deleted. Yeah. So, and maybe that's also an example. Yeah, it might be mm -hmm. that the document was completely deleted. That's yeah. right. Then you have nothing you're working on. Yeah, and then you... An example would be, I don't know, I'm, I'm working or I'm looking, I'm working on an, let's say, a tour, a freight order. And uh, for example, I change one item, I change the product item. Somebody is, have opened that same document in parallel. And, um, while we started uh, at the same time, so we, we all have product A, um, in our buffer, in our, UI. Uh, now the first one is changing it to B 
and I'm uh, getting me a coffee or two or three. And now I come back. Meanwhile, the other guy has already saved. And now the database version, the real world is B on my screen and in my buffer and in my world, I still have the A. So if I now wouldn't have that optimistic lock uh, concept, I, I, I wouldn't know that because I, if I now change it, I don't run into a lock because the other one uh, is already uh, now getting his coffee and he saved and left uh, the transaction. And uh, But now, since we have that optimistic lock, I lost it, so something happened to my element. Uh, I'll come to that later. What is the level of that lock? Um, but uh, now I know that, that my A might not be valid anymore. Maybe the item is not there anymore. Maybe the whole document is not there anymore. So I have to reload the buffer, and then I get the latest version. So you, you may sometimes see in, in TM... Uh, infos like uh, data has been changed in parallel session, please reload data. So like in the cockpit, I think you might have seen that because I have a lot of elements there. And then that's exactly the background because what you see is not what you, what actually the reality on the database and the database is the truth in, yeah. in that world. Yeah. And of course, it must not be always, or it needs not to be always a, a human user. It can be also a batch process, which is in, in background changing the data. Or a cat or something. Okay, could it be as well? Sure. Okay. Depends from the cat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, Good. Then the last one is here the test data container, test data. So the Bob framework is also supporting unit tests. Yeah. Which can be quite fine granular defined. Yeah. So In principle, also. you see, we uh, do not fully uh, take advantage of that uh, concept. Features, yeah. yeah. I think we have some, but not too many. And then some of the admin data last change created by, ah, it was my, you see, it's my business object. Created, ah, back then. 20 past 10. <laughs> okay, so classical transactional uh, admin data stuff. Okay. Um, should we also go into the other uh, areas here? Um, yeah, sure. Yeah. Let's shortly look into the subscription. Subscription, okay, we we can't, um, we don't have here any input or data. We don't data. use it here. Hmm? Uh, we could here define which which, which other business objects uh, might be relevant for me uh, if they are changed. So if we have a business object, let's say event hmm? handler, and this event handler is relevant for me because I'm relying on its data on its status and so on. Then I could define here, I want to be informed whenever the event handler is changed. And then I, I have my own transact or my own determine or yeah, some events what, what is, okay. And then you get the information, it. you can implement there some classes. Even so, in my own business object, nothing happened, but the other one changed and I'm, I'm informed basically. Yeah. Okay. But we don't use that too much in TM, do we? Yeah, it's too too rough. Mm. We just get mm. any information of this other div, uh, business object. That's that why is we far too much traffic for us. Yeah, we do it uh, in coding basically. Yeah. Yeah, same thing. Um, yeah, finalization dependency. That's uh, also an interesting one. And we have something maintained here. We are now in the tour. Yeah, here you can structure how you want to save a transaction. Transaction means as for LWB, uh, LW, LUW. LUW, a logical unit oh. of work. So one context, yeah, one, one transaction. Context. 
Um, typically, when you when you change a freight order and and save it, then um, you're propagating, for example, status information or some some quantity updates also to other business object instances. For example, to a request document, which is related. Well, even more simple, I, I have a forwarding order. I change it, and that change updates the freight units. Technically, yeah. two freight uh, two business objects now changed. If I now save. It makes a lot of a difference if I process first the TRQ changes and then the TOR changes or vice versa. Yeah. And yeah. exactly this you can define here. You can say you, you can define a, a fixed sequence between business objects. So in our case, first the TRQ is finalized and completed and then the TOR changes uh, are done. Because, for example, the freight unit building as such is triggered in the TRQ before save. So now, if we would first finalize the tour and then comes the TRQ and actually changes tour objects again, the freight units, uh, we would get like uh, confusions between the uh, different objects, right? So there's always a logical sequence of um, objects uh, to be uh, processed, and that is defined here. That's for safe, right? So not for modifications, but for only for safe, yes, for yeah. safe. Yeah, model visualization, also Ooh. a nice tool. Uh, we can click once. And position model. I think it should start. Okay, the good thing is if you don't see the video, you don't miss anything now. Yeah. Nothing happens. Uh, basically, I think the idea is here that you have a graphical view at the business object. Exactly. When when going to this tab, uh, Java is starting in, in, on, on normal computers. That talks. Maybe I and uh, <laughs> then you see the whole uh, business object model as graphical. Ah, I just had a Java update, graph. which yeah, nicely asked me if I want to ask uh, install yeah. uh, Yahoo search bar stuff. Maybe I cancel too much. Yeah, yeah perhaps. Uh, so do you then get traditional models like uh, URL or yeah, it's a little bit URL like okay, yeah. a little bit not perfect, but goes into this direction. Okay. It basically shows a node model with associations, or with the compositions in this case, yeah, this with um, assigned cardinalities. I know it's from working systems. Yeah. yeah and where um, Bernd now clicked on is the design document um, that's thought for smaller business objects, not for business objects like Tor with uh, no real 450 ones. actions on the root level. Can you just <clears throat> yes. So this is now generating a Word document, which um, could be used at least as a quite fine granular template for your uh, SDD, for your software design document. You could take it to the next review to review this business object here. Mm -hmm. In principle. Or um, use it for technical documentation purposes to get, let other people know what BO elements are used for what purpose, like we get to know actions and all the others. So we can uh, define how is it implemented internally and uh, what it is for. Yeah. Okay, it takes a while. Um, that's why we reopen in the second uh, session. Yeah, with that, we come to the notes, I would say. Yes. Um, let's please. first go now to the note elements, because that's... Um, 
the structure is clear that we have just the yeah, remember hierarchical here. structure between the root node and then its subnodes and the sub-subnodes and possibly I think we have Yeah, we have, wait, where is our lowest level? Let's see Our property is technical one. Just Do we have four levels four. somewhere? Uh, tendering. Go into tendering, then you come to five ah, levels. I okay, think. okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. And also here we have the party address, which is also below the item with the party and then the address. But if okay. we are now here in the structure, node structure, then just double click one node, then we get into the details of the node. Okay, maybe let's take the root node huh, as a starting point. Yeah, sure. Okay. What is what can we define for it? So here we see um, again first the node name, root, and a description. Unfortunately, just 30 or 40 characters as description, but okay, better than nothing. We have a change request that uh, you are allowed to have better documentation, yeah. inline documentation with Perhaps colleagues. So one-pager or something like that. Text but collection. it's not yet there. Yeah, not yet. Yeah. And then you have the node settings there. And um, let's start with, uh, with the data model. There you have a data yeah. structure first. So yeah. what do you define here? The data structure is uh, just what, what is contained, what information is contained on the node level. And uh, the pure data yeah. is covered in this structure. If you double-click it, you come into the data dictionary, and you find just a list of um, elements, tour ID, tour category, tour type, with the uh, corresponding component types. As you know, it, if you're defining a database. And in uh, reality, this is part of the database definition. So here you model the semantics of a node with its attributes, what can be stored there, what information is contained in a node. Yeah. Okay. Then we have further structures And we there. Have, uh, yeah, we have first transient structure. What is it? It, it sounds evil. Yeah, <laughs> transient. <laughs> it is evil. <laughs> transient means um, that are attributes which are not contained or not covered uh, on the database. So purely computed information, aggregate, aggregates, or whatever. So just um, if, you, if you have, uh, for example, yeah, item quantity summary would be a classical transient attribute on the root. That would be just the information or the summary of all quantities being stored on item level of a document. And then you could have there one million. Kilograms. Yeah. No. For so, example. So in some way, the chance in structure is kind of opposite to the um, um, persistent structure, maybe, which will. Uh, it's enhancing it. It's uh, so if you yeah. if you have that note, if you later retrieve or read retrieve that note, that note consists of the transient or of the persistent part, which is also one to one on the database. Hopefully later, okay. if everything runs well, plus. Transient, transient uh -huh. data, which is then filled normally in a uh, before retrieve uh, or in a uh, after loading depends. Coding. Yeah, with yeah. additional coding. The problem. It sounds like a good idea, but in effect, it it, it can be and was in our case also a performance nightmare because that data is filled specifically if you do things like filling the item total quantity here. Because if you now only read the root node to get the idea what happens for Bob, because if you read the data, you cannot specify exactly what are the fields that you really want uh, to read. 
in a way you can, but it's a bad idea because it also fills the buffer. And there is, there's no, in a buffer, you have for every item, for example, you have one entry in the buffer. And there's not that, okay, this is the entry for the buffer if you read it for that attribute. And this is, again, this if you read it for another attribute, there's one entry. That means all the data must be processed and filled, even so you don't, you're not interested in it. Yeah. And that's the problem here. Basically, you read the data, uh, and, and all the calculations are done, uh, and, and nobody cares in that specific case, but the CPU cares and the database server cares. And so it takes unnecessary runtime. That's why for our use case, at least, we decided not to have transient uh, structures in a BO node. We come maybe later to transient nodes later. That's a bit of a different story, a bit better, but also with challenges. But having transient structure, the only exception I think uh, we have here which is kind of okay. I think in TRQ we also have it to make a modification to the non-persisted data. So transactionally can change a field without affecting the database, but still having a trigger for something that you don't want to save. That might be a valid uh, use case. Is that clear? So for performance, like uh, it's better to have a persistence uh, structure. So yeah. it's better to say somewhere. you have to to handle it with care. Okay. No. But really, and, and there's ways of where you cannot really handle it with care um, because of the structure, right? I mean, the data will be filled if somebody reads your note, if he's interested in that field or not. And that is something you cannot really avoid or so, right? So, and, and that's why if it's very cheap data that you can just compute on the database or on the data that you anyway read, then it might be okay, but then you can also maybe persist it. So then it's maybe most likely not a lot of additional value. And if you compute it with external data, items, whatever, something else that you need to read, you must be aware that this happens always when this node is read. So be careful. Yeah, then you'll find here um, the combined structure. Combined means it's somehow extended with some additional information. And the additional information is always the same for both nodes. That's the key, the parent key information and the root key information. Yeah. You see it uh, here also on the screen. Um, you have always these three attributes which are uniquely identifying one instance of any node of your business object. So that's actually the glue between the different parts of an object instance. So yeah. these keys, you always know okay, which items actually belong to a specific root node instance, for example. Yeah, that, exactly. And that's the root key always. In the item case, the item is directly below the root, so the parent key and the root key is the same. Because, uh, But the seal node, the seal is one level below the item. So the parent is the item. The root is the root. So it allows you to actually navigate through the whole hierarchy of nodes within an instance. And you always have a chance to jump from an uh, instance to the uh, higher level, one, uh, one level up in the hierarchy, and always you point to the corresponding root node, meaning you always know what is the leading object or document, if you will. And it allows you to jump from one node instance to the direct uh, predecessor node, so yeah. that you know 
where do uh, where are you in the hierarchy and that allows you to navigate through the whole kind of hierarchy of an instance but that that parent here really means the technical node parent so the item is below the root that's why the parent key is the root it's not because we also have item hierarchies right an item also has a sub item and that has another sub item that is completely separate separately defined from from that one this is really what is the technical parent that uh, is tour specific yeah. what you are so what he's saying is like trq yeah also thing. trq Yeah. But it means if you have a package in a, a package item in a container item, the parent key of the package item is still the root key of yeah. the right. Yeah. Not, not the container. So you have to distinguish between a semantical hierarchy, which mm -hmm. is this has a business purpose, and a technical hierarchy, which is represented by these right. keys here. So the semantic hierarchy within a node, within the item hierarchy. Uh, that is really completely up to you, and that this item belongs to that root, that is defined with a parent key and root key in that yeah. case. Okay. Hey, then uh, the third or the fourth uh, parameter here is the combined table type. That is just the table type of a combined structure. We need not to go into it. No. It's very simple. Um, just the vehicle for the data. Yeah, and the K stands for key, not for typo for combined. Um, I think right. that's underscored. That, that combined structure is always, uh, we always uh, have it like the, the data structure name and then underscore K, yeah, which stands for key and not for typo for combined. So yeah, yeah, it's intentionally. Okay. So coming back to the uh, other implementation that you use now, that mm -hmm. elements here, when you define an internal table or a structure where you like to place some data in by a retrieve, which we will get to know. You read data and your internal table might be defined by, by exactly these kind of types here, which you see here in the definition of the nodes. So whenever you read the content of a node and you want to place it into an internal table, you actually directly know what data dictionary type to use. It's, it's here in the node. The combined table type. Right? Exactly. And the other one you don't even need to know because you do a, a loop at assigning components. So, um, uh, and moreover, by in the meantime, I know it by heart um, just by the naming convention. Okay, if you have a root node structure, it's it's following exactly this naming convention. You can tell by the name of the node what the structure looks like or what the structure's name. Is potentially yeah. at least 80% percent. Uh, it stops at the stop successor. <laughs> yeah, then it stops exactly. exactly. But, uh, <laughs> but even then, you can start to type and yeah. then press yeah. Control Space and then you get it autocomplete. So it's yes. always S for the structure, T for table type, and then business object name, node abbreviation or node name if it fits, and then underscore K. And having that structure was one of the reasons why we. And in six, so I think we had very long uh, business object names. It was a bad idea, yeah. and that's why we shortened them dramatically yeah. uh, in in eight that we have the chance to have that kind of uh, schema. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, then we come to the extension include. Hmm? Our business objects are enhanceable or extendable. We have both expressions. <laughs> the same. Um, this extension include is just an um, a small structure contains just a dummy element, which can be used as vehicle for an append structure. Append structure, that's a technique from NetWeaver, from Data Dictionary. You can uh, define for any structure in Data Dictionary if it should be appendable or extendable by customers or whomever. And if you have 
done this, then you can define a pen structure via, I don't know, utilities, define a pen structure. And then you can just extend the structure with additional attributes. Um, example, yeah, you have in your item again, your own field. Yeah. You add it here and then more or less it's available everywhere. Yeah, exactly. And we have it here in an own structure that the framework, the Bob framework, um, can recognize them as extension attributes, as customer attributes. It's just to separate it from the standard attributes. And the same we have then for the transient structure. If we have it defined, we can also have extension includes on the transient structure. And then we can define here secondary keys for faster uh, data access for the key attribute and for the root key attribute of the node. If we would have other buffer class instances. Uh, I think for our uh, implementations, it's not really used because those are not the merits of detail. Yeah. In principle, you could maintain it here, but that's more nice gesture of you. It doesn't have any effect in TM, unfortunately. We're working on that. Yeah. We're working on that. Yeah. Then, still remember the buffer class? Yeah. Right? <laughs> Now we see here the node-specific buffer class. That's also a standard buffer class, which the Bob framework provides. And that is a um, full, how do you say, fully implemented uh, buffer, um, which can do everything that a buffer should do. Could be perhaps a little bit faster, but that's yes. a different story. And uh, this buffer is able to, to handle more than just one buffer image. It has the current image of the data, which should be the most up-to-date one. The last database image, sometimes the before modification image. So if you're changing something, then it uh, has the database image in buffer. It has the before modification image and it has the current image. And then it can happen that it validates the consistency of the data after the uh, change was done. Then we have a last validated image. And it can be that some uh, deeper, uh, internal calculations happen on this node after the change. Uh, for example, setting lifecycle status on the root node or something like that. And after these uh, calculations were performed, we have a last determined image. So up to five images, I think. Yep. I just have here all the different types. And all this, this, this handling and the synchronization and the communication with the duck class, with the data access class is uh, done in the CLBuff simple class. Yeah. I tried to find it. I just copied them to, yeah. It's always hard to find them in the different states. Yeah. Okay. This class you even need not to specify. It is then yeah. used as default, as fallback by the framework. Exactly. Because we defined on header level, and oh, that was the buffer dispatcher, right? Yeah. Which is, okay. Let's get to the most important thing that customers and partners asked. Where is the database table of that node? We want to see the database table. It's always a classic question. You see yes. uh, the definition of the database table for that specific node. But typically, if it's for a good reason, at the very end, because typically you shouldn't care. I mean, if we... That was my point, exactly. <laughs> um, so, um, customers from the old world, like R3, R2, always want to know, okay, what's the database table where this and that semantical content is stored? In the Bob framework, you don't have to take care about the database table because the framework, as you can see, represents you a semantical model of your real-world object, which is a document in this case, right? And you can 
when you work with a Bob framework, you don't have to take care about the persistency because the framework takes care of that. And as a developer, that means you don't have to usually take care of getting data persisted or retrieved from the database directly. So database is not necessary to, to, um, to be known, at least from a table perspective. Of course, when you work with it, you have the database model sometime in mind, and you know, okay, I mean, database table usually represents a one-to-one -one, uh, relationship between node and table, but there can always be uh, also be um, nodes that share one database table, but I don't think that we make that much use of this feature in one framework. Yeah, we don't. Uh, we are using it, yes. Oh, not, not so rare places. So we use the same database for ah okay yeah yeah we come to that yeah yeah yep then but in a good place so yeah right that's also possible yeah we come to that uh, if you have the same structure really but just different places where you have the same element then you can use the same yeah. database table so the database table is not uh, generated upon the combined table uh, type or combined structure so you that's a good question. It yourself or initial state generated you or? can generate it right but uh, no where is it extras right generate uh, dictionary elements but never ever do that in an existing uh, uh, business object because it's really overwriting everything in every specifics as well right? without risk you can then cancel it yeah. <laughs> you don't trust it. Last famous words. I mean, if you, you recreate something completely new, new business object, then that helps you. Otherwise, yeah. uh, not really. You, yeah, okay, Dirk. Because it's you. <laughs> so here yeah. you see, uh, typically you define the data structure, and then you can say, uh, dear framework, please generate all the other stuff. And then it is generating everything. But Usually, when you go to the TM system, you can be pretty sure that the database table, its attributes, um, are that attributes which you have defined in the data structure defined for the node. That's the the, the, the normal case. In, in both there's cases. there's so one. The, the, this is why I asked. Yeah. yeah. The attributes of the database table usually come from the uh, data structure representing the node. Not. So, from the combined data structure? No, not from the combined. No, That's why I said data yes. structure. Um, yeah. Take a look at the key definition here for the database table, which Bert is currently showing. It's a bit, di bit different than the combined structure. Right? Yeah, instead of before, for those of you on the audio only, uh, in the combined table type, we had key, parent key, root key, always. Uh, here we have client, which is, of course, not required transactionally, but for the database. And uh, DB key. I think that's more of an accident because the key is a forbidden keyword in, in a database context. And uh, not a, is it a warning only? Or? It is a warning, yes. So at least that's why they, I mean, naturally it would be key here yeah? because it was it's also the uh, attribute. I think, yeah, that's a bit of history already, maybe a bit special. Um, they should have maybe. Would have would be good to have one name schema for for key on database and in the combined structure, but okay, that's the way it is. Yeah, and the parent key and root key are simply not necessary for the root node instances. Exactly. Maybe we should uh, give some comments. Maybe to keep in comment on that um, because I get always the question and I have also always some trouble with explaining it. 
We have the combined structure with uh, key, uh, parent key and root key. And then we see on the database table, which belongs to that node, okay, there's only DB key. And um, how does that work together? How does the, um, uh, the system then know, okay, what's the, no, uh, what's the parent key and what's the root key? How does it, does it match together? That can be directly derived from the um, node structure. There we have it, the root. There we, we need just the instance key, so we are fine with the DB key. On the next level, we need, in addition, the parent key. Yep. And on the third level, we need, in addition, the root key. Now no, we are we're on item level. Item is directly below root key. On the database, we have the key, the DB key, and the parent key. Fortunately, not DB parent key, but parent key. Yeah. And uh, below that, we have the seal node, that is sub-item of the item, sub-element of the item. Yeah. And in here, we also should have the root key. Uh, on top, yeah. DB key, we have client, database, uh, element key, root key, and parent key. That is, um, I mean, you could say that root key is not required here because I could also find it through its parents. That's for pure performance consideration. So if I want to load the seal node directly for that element, uh, I can load it separately without reading the element. So that is kind of a planned redundancy, so to say. So for the database, it's of course only a single key that makes an instance of a entry mm -hmm. unique, right? Yeah. But you always have a secondary key, or should always have a secondary key on parent slash root key for fast access, uh, because that is how very often the data is collected. And that same holds true for your enhancements, of course. So if you create an enhancement with uh, your own enhancement database table, you should have a parent key. Um, and root key database. I think if you check the business object, there's also a check button that it will give you a performing, performance warning if you don't yes. have it defined. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. That's maybe enough for the basic settings of the node. We have some more advanced setting. Uh, maybe you can also look into it. Fortunately, it's not relevant anymore, right? This persistency attribute mapping. Um, there we have just the rough mapping uh, mm -hmm. mapping logic for key to DB key mapping. For root key and parent key, we have always the same names. And then we have for the node data part, so for the data structure part, we have always a name to include, um, node data in general, but can be also a different name. Um, this mapping can be used by the framework to, for, for an accelerated access sometimes. And that's also where you really define that key is DB key. And I'm more not mapping is not necessary because the data structure is the same in the combined structure, the internal node representation, and uh, the database representation. In principle, you could have uh, you could map every single field, yeah. and in six or seven, I think we really had that mapping between internal. We had an internal. Structure and then an external structure also learning. Oh, we actually didn't have a use case to do that. Maybe. No, it was always one to one, but as Bob was still doing or Ava was still doing assign component element for element, moving it, which is terribly slow. Um, so that's why we really reduced that. And the internal is the external representation because assign component is Performance-wise, bit evil. Remember, yeah, we had the performance podcast, right? We may listen to that one as well if you're interested in why. 
And one last thing on node level is a property change trigger. What is that? Yeah, it's an uh, enhanced concept how you can uh, control properties. Should we go over to the properties? Hmm. Yes, perhaps. Maybe it's a good idea, yeah. yeah. Properties, the one, one thing is a node data, the other one is a properties, yeah. yeah. Now we had the, um, the, the node structure shortly discussed. Um, for what do we have nodes and all the data? We have it to display it somewhere on UIs, for example, or to run any, any or to do modifications on this data. And um, if you have, if you are, if you are building a UI, you run earlier or later into the, into the situation that in specific cases, for example, depending from the life cycle of the document, you want to close some fields. If you have entered once, for example, you have defined a freight order um, for a freight order, the mode of transport or transportation mode, as I think the, the correct mm. wording, uh, let's say air, then it is an air freight order. And it's really hard to then change. Then it actually would be a booking. That example. <laughs> air, air booking, okay. And it, it would be really hard to, to change the uh, freight booking air into a road freight order. Well, document type would be another example. Yeah. If I want or the, or the document type, yes, where you have to find also something that charges are relevant or event management is relevant or whatever. If you're changing the type, you're uh, changing the whole document. And if you have then different data already maintained, it could be that some data gets obsolete or yeah, it's such it is just inconsistent, the document. Exactly. And to prevent this, it's the easiest way to just forbid the change of such fields as soon as they are defined once. And this is done with properties. And properties, um, it's better if you go to the node category once, then we can see also properties. Properties are, um, now you have to go into the um, node elements, oh, yeah. into the next part of the trees. Let's just to one node. One, which one do we like? Item TR, yes. <laughs> and there, um, open the node category. <clears throat> Item go into the category, and there we find the um, attribute properties. Should we very briefly mention what this, those node categories are originally meant Afterwards. for? Okay. Afterwards. Good, good, good. Um, yeah, and here you can, in fact, say for, for every field of a node, this field should be enabled or not. You could, and, and here you find the static defined properties. Here, everything for our business objects is always enabled, but you could here also have some technical elements which are not enabled per default. Could be perhaps some, some use case. Then you can also define that uh, attributes should be read-only. Here we have also some, some uh, fields which are marked to be read-only, what means they can't be updated from outside. Yeah, modif yeah, yeah. Um, and then you can uh, say that uh, they should be final, what means you can't overrule this uh, property setting mm -hmm. dynamically. That's also possible. You can define uh, attributes as mandatory. So having it initial and performing a safe means that the safe is rejected because there's no entry. You get an error message and safe will not be possible. Um, these are the, the field properties you can have. You can also have properties for actions. Actions are kind of buttons on your UIs. 
behind every button is more or less an action in most cases. Yeah. And Something like if you uh, want to disable a button, then you can just say action property should be disabled or not enabled. And then the button is great. Or like, the action mm, cannot be executed at least. Example would be something like perform carrier selection, that is an action. And if I already invoice that trade order, I don't I don't want to do a new carrier selection. I yeah. disable that complete uh, action then. Maybe it's important to know where is that um where are those properties really um considered. Um because you may think you are totally safe by setting it here. Uh, for performance reason, we, we disabled in TM um, the Bob check against uh, dynamic and static properties. Why? Oh, okay, why is performance? Huh? Because it was really every modification that we did, even from already um, checked instances, were revalidated again, and that was really slow. Huh? So that's why... Uh, You have to be a bit careful. So our UIs will always, standard UIs and FBI and Trabi-based custom UIs as well, will automatically consider the properties because the property concept, we come to that a bit later, uh, is generically implemented and they read the properties, the standard UIs, with FBI. Wow. Uh, oh yeah, we had a podcast about FBI as well and about Trabi. Uh, so you already know that very well. And so they are reading that automatically. But for if, if you write your own report that does a modification, um, it will not be checked, the properties. It will just do that modification. So you have to do that check yourself. Services, again, a bit different. They could check the properties uh, then within processing principle. That would be the concept here. Um, for For... Really, reports that doing modifications, you're not safe. For actions, yes, action properties are checked, but for field modifications, you have to check it yourself. And um, to be able to check it, uh, you have a specific service manager method at hand, retrieve properties, and when calling retrieve properties, properties are calculated, and you get them back. And then you have just to check if the field you want to modify is. And the structure that you get back? Maybe it's a good one here. Yeah. Uh, is you want to show how they look like? Hmm? Yeah, um, a set. This is the static definition of properties. You can also overrule it with dynamic properties. And for this dynamic property calculation, we have a field control in place. I just wanted to to yeah hmm? right. And uh, this is uh, burnt now showing. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, so if you uh, create uh, the properties, for example, for seal, can it be deleted, can it be changed, can a certain field be changed, it's always an entry in a node in the BO. That's a transient node because it doesn't make sense to save that uh, status on, on the database. That's why it's always calculated uh, on demand. Um, and the structure of the properties is always the same. So you have a certain... Content key, that's the, the node uh, key. Content cut, we can leave aside for the moment. Then we have a certain attribute name and the property name. So what, what does it mean? So if I have a certain attribute, which is disabled and read-only or enabled and read-only or so, you would have two entries here for every element. So for that seal, 
you would have an entry with a key huh, of that seal node, attribute name, seal ID, and property name is uh, read enabled uh, or well, update enabled and then true or false. So that's a lot of data. And we are currently also working on a refactoring on a maybe a bit simplified way of doing it because currently really you have for every node and every field multiple entries, which is sometimes too much. I mean, you can define a lot with it, but it takes a lot. So that is the basic structure of the properties. And they are calculated in a before determination, but we come to that later, what the determinations, etc. we come Should we come later or just explain it now on this example? Yeah, maybe we can, we said that, maybe we can take the properties, the action properties that you mentioned earlier to now lead over to the actions, to the uh, actions themselves. Okay. Maybe that is okay for you. Okay, yeah, sure. Okay, so. So actions are um, an explicit activity, whatever, on your business object. Let's take our example with the career selection. Maybe I just uh, mentioned that earlier, maybe. So we are now in, in, the, in our root node again, and we have actions, a lot of them. Uh, you find them in the node elements, not in the node structure. Ah, yeah. In the node structure, you find only the nodes. And their hierarchical structure. And in the node elements, you find the nodes alphabetically sorted. Yeah. And then you can expand every node and find then their node categories we saw and actions, queries, determinations, validations, and whatever. So the internal stuff yeah. of the document. Maybe one so details for every node then. So what hmm? you saw in the node structure is what does the hierarchy of information look like? And on the node elements, this is all the stuff that defines the behavior and runtime yeah. and allows you to access the content of this data. So queries to search for and you get to know others, actions to execute something. So that's defining the runtime, if you will. And this node structure is, so to say, the design time to describe um, what the basic content of an object is. Yeah, the details for an element, basically, also. So, uh, what do we have here? Carrier select or perform carrier selection. Perform carrier selection. That's the action name, and that is a button you may know from the uh, freight order booking UIs. So, what can we define for such an action? Yeah, again, you see the same pattern action name and description as we know it. And no real description yeah. as we know it. <laughs> And then you see here um, to which node this action belongs to. So every node, uh, every action is related to exactly one node. In this case, the root node. We found it under the root node. So no surprise. Because it doesn't make sense to have a carrier selection for one item. So that's why it's on for yeah. the complete document. Yeah. And if you expand here the action category, we see here object-specific action. Um, in difference to, example, the um, don't we have here an aesthetic? Mm -hmm. That's action? the I think in the action cardinality. Okay, then this means we have mm -hmm. here no framework action. We have also framework actions for creating, updating, deleting instances, for locking instances, etc. You find here all the the possible actions we know. Oh, archive is also one category. That's interesting. <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> 
So uh, we are interested here in object-specific actions, what means our implemented actions. We had our hands-on. Then action cardinality means um, do we execute this, um, this action for many instances, for one instance, or for possibly no instance? That's just, uh, but that's, that's not binding. It's just... Uh, mm, it's for locking. I think for locking it's, uh, I think, important. For locking it might be important, yes, but it will be called independent if, if keys are provided. What, what is the difference? I mean, I think that single node instance, that's evil, so we should not have a action for single node uh, instances. Basically, I, I could say the developer of that action was too lazy to mass enable it, or I, I think there are really, there shouldn't be... Uh, a single node instance action, not saying that they are not there, but there's no good reason to have that, except for you don't care about performance or so, or there might be very special cases, I don't know, um, but for all real business objects where you have more data, um, it, it must be um, a multiple node instance uh, action, for example, that you can call it from the POWL for all selected Write documents there. So, so <clears throat> maybe they should remove that thing. <laughs> thing. The other one, the static action is you may have things um, where you don't really have a specific instance. So you could model something like um, create document also as an action. And that it's kind of hosted in the BO, but as you create a document, you don't have a key yet uh, so that you can kind of call it for a specific instance. Yeah? So it's a freestyle action independent of the document instance. Exactly. So the either you have another way of uh, providing the document instance, which is a bad idea, um, or you have an action which is really independent of that single document instance, but still you want to document it with a new business object. Currently, I don't have a good... We have some, uh, but I don't have a good example... But we might, but yeah, doch, I, I do have one. Um, we have cases for planning. Yeah? We do a planning uh, where you have freight unit stages and freight order root nodes. So you're working on two different levels in the same document. Yeah? The freight unit stage, you can have a pre-lag um, that is uh, not the root node, obviously, it's a stage which is stop, stop successor. And uh, this is one node, the stop successor node. And in that same action, you also want to use the freight order. And for the freight order, it's a root node. And then, where would you put that action? It is, you could, okay, you could randomly assign it as a root action with a parameter for the freight unit stage keys or vice versa, but it's cleaner to, to define it as a static action. If you don't have a clear host node, of course. You have to make sure uh, your locking does well then, because we, we come now to the next <laughs> important thing and a big advantage also of actions. Think, yeah, that's the change mode. Change mode is a little bit misleading. You could say um, what you want to say is, uh, do you change instances? You know when executing the action, or uh, or not, and that's why you can define here. No, we are not changing any instances. Only root uh, read node. Or we are changing the instances for which the action is called. Um, if you are changing instances with which the action is called, for example, here freight document keys, 
um, then you should lock them before executing the action, because else it could happen that the action starts to work and modify data and do things, and then, oops, suddenly it runs into, an, into a lock because someone else did it earlier, a little bit earlier. And then you have to roll everything back. That's really if you hard. can. If, if you, you can. can. Yeah. In most cases, you can't. Yeah. And then you have to close your session and you have to start from scratch. And to avoid this, you can say, okay, we are here running in exclusive write mode. And if you are doing this, you have to define read write nodes for this action. Um, read nodes are not that relevant. Uh, they are just a uh, performed optimization for reading data that might be relevant for this action. Then Bob is taking care to preload the data into buffer before the, the action is starting. The write nodes are important for locking. And there you can then define, okay, we have to create locks on, for example, here, root level, and it should be an update lock that we want to create in the system before the action is starting. If you would create instances, I don't know which kinds of locks you would you would define. Uh, on root level, none, I would say. For delete, it could be also relevant. Yeah, I think from locking perspective, update and delete, that's the same thing, but I think for modeling to have a cleaner picture here, it's good to know what what should be the output of that action. It's still not preventing the action from doing something completely different. Yeah. And so it's not check controlling uh, the coding against that check here. Um, it's just generating if, the locks yeah. and then preventing that you are running in, into, a, into a collision. What happens if, if you now call an action in a pre-processing, uh, it will read or will determine what are the nodes that I need to lock huh, defined here. In our case, a root node, but it could also be an external node. So you could have an association, for example, from your freight unit to the forwarding order yeah? association. You can also define, I have a freight unit action that will change the predecessor forwarding orders. And then it will lock predecessor forwarding orders and not the freight unit itself. And still, you know, after the call, if, if you now call that action, um, if that locking fails, it will do nothing. It depends a bit. There's another setting. Um, but it will not start the action coding for that freight orders that couldn't be locked. Yeah, if I have, let's say I have 10 freight orders in a POWL a work list, I press carrier selection and one has been locked by Dirk. Uh, meanwhile, it, it depends a bit. You can define here, um, if this action can only be uh, performed if it really works for all 10 thread orders, which is here not the case. And, and, and with that setting where the execute action, um, only if it can be executed for all node IDs, if that is deactivated. In our example, it would perform it for the nine nodes that could be locked and wouldn't do it for the 10th one where Joker is working on. But I could also define it's like all or nothing. So it doesn't make sense to do it for part of the keys. No, it's one, one thing, one context. And then I would set that flag, and then as soon as one element cannot be locked, everything fails. It's a bit tricky, then the failed keys that you get back from the action are a bit tricky to interpret, but maybe that's too much for, for the moment. Yeah. If you want to know which one was really the bad guy, that's not so easy. But in most cases, it's enough to know yes or no. Could we go a little bit deeper into the clumps? Yeah. Next thing is the class 
itself, which it contains the action logic in above. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's the FFA action interface. And I think the most important one is the execute method, right? Ah, um, okay, maybe we should do it uh, 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 sequentially. Yeah. Um, I think it's first... Uh, no, it's first retrieve default parameter. Oh, no, that's separate. Huh? Maybe let's leave that default parameter stuff aside for the moment. It's first it calls the prepare method and then the execute. Yes. Right? For determinations, will be a bit more sophisticated. Yeah. Okay. Prepare could be, for example, an automatic consistency check being executed before the action is starting. That is something that could be executed in the prepare step. Yeah. Uh, for us, it's often just empty. We're not implementing that there. Mm. Yeah, and then uh, this looks always the same for validations, determinations, and queries and mm. for actions, as we see. If you show the signature of the action. Yeah, oh, sorry. Um, the action um, or every action has to implement uh, this interface of IFFRW action. And um, for validations, uh, the interface has the same name, just with validation, mm -hmm. IFFRW validation, for determination, IFFRW determination. But we don't even know queries, what that is, right, validation determination. IFFRW query. So that's easy to, to remember. And the um, action coding is implemented in the execute method. And the action is executed with the parameter list. First one is always the context. In the context, if you look into the structure, you find always the action key that you can identify into in your code, in your coding, which action was really executed. Because one uh, ABAP class can be also used in several action implementations. That's no problem. If you have common parts, then it might make sense to have the same action class in several actions and just to do some additional stuff depending from the action key. Like the coding for assign TSP and remove TSP, that's yeah. the same class because a lot of stuff is the same thing, but uh, you have to um, you know, have to know, okay, now I'm called in my incarnation uh -huh. as remove and now I'm called in my incarnation as assign. And that is that action key here. And that action key, uh -huh. remember, is one from the constant interface Every action has its name and, more importantly, key. Yeah. One from For example, SCMTMS, IF, TOR, C, SC action, root, carrier selection. Perform carrier Perform selection. Perform carrier selection. Exactly. Yes. Or shortly called A2011. Yes. Do it, yeah. Okay, that's the context. Mm -hmm. um, static information of the action, of the code, which is currently executed. Then uh, you get a list of instance keys, IT key. That's the trade order keys, for example. That I'm yeah, that calling. are instance keys uh -huh. of the root of, of the in our case, to root. which the action belongs to. Yeah. So in our case, root node instances. But really only the keys, not the data. Yeah. So. Yeah. And that's a must. Yeah. The keys have to belong to this node. Yeah. And um, then you have here uh, some, some objects, instances of a read 
object and a modification object with which you can read data from your business object, from your own business object, Tor, or modify data from your own business object. Using these objects, uh, determinations, etc., are not executed despite of transient ones, right? Well, determinations are yeah. executed later. The, yeah, uh, the, the service yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. later, the determinations are executed, but the service manager interface is not quite so. Authority checks, for example, are not. If I read the data with IO read, yeah, you're so right. Authority check. You're yeah, right. yeah. So authority check uh, is not performed because I'm inside my own business object. So I don't need an authority check. I'm trusting myself. The technical thing. Versus if I do that same retrieve, is a, what we call a service manager. We haven't talked about it and I think we won't do it today. Um, then there is an, some extra layers um, in between, which, for example, do the authority check. Properties are not taken into account. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, then you have sometimes uh, action parameters. You can execute an action with some uh, input parameters, and they are just provided as a ref to data object. You can use it here if it is yeah. provided. And then you have always an EO message instance, which needs not to be instantiated already. So it might be that you need to, to instantiate it before putting messages into it. That's the standard message channel. That is how you involved. give like an error message, information message, whatever yeah. message. Which and it, it comes through to the consumer mm. who triggered the action yeah. from wherever. Consumer can be other program UI service. Whoever called that action. Yeah. But you can also eat that uh, and then uh, uh, if it is do not uh, put it to the next level. Yeah, and it failed keys. Um, ET fade key is always a subset of IT key. Should be. It's not always, but then it's stuck. I have, no, example, I have the 10 freighters. I, I call them. One of them has been removed already in the pre-processing of Bob because Dirk locked my freighter. And now I come with nine keys. And maybe one of them is uh, a freight unit where I cannot perform a carrier selection at all. So I would then say, okay, pff, Technically, it can be locked, but it's not the right node instance. So I return it then from within the coding as a failed key and a message, most likely, why I have that failed key. But that's then in the EO message uh, container. So all the instances where my coding did not do anything, hopefully, um, would be returned with a message and failed keys. Right? I would I would no? say more uh, all all the instance keys where you had some problems with. Because but you it, should it do be, it might be okay that you do nothing. It depends from yeah the yeah okay. But I think what you shouldn't do is yeah. I uh, change uh, a certain object and then I return that object with a failed key. I think that would be surprising for everyone. Yeah. yeah. So that's the failed keys are for those instances where the caller seems to expect that I do something. With the instance, but I can't. I'm as an action. I wouldn't do a carrier selection for five units, huh? yeah. and that's why I don't do anything. And I put it into the failed keys. Yeah, and the last parameter, et data, is for returning any data. That's to the caller. Relatively it's new, quite new. Yes, but nice feature. You can use now action as a kind of function, and which returns really data. The uh, before 
you don't have that. You have an action fail keys and messages. So kind of opt you manipulate is more like an OO, pure OO thing. You have that object, you do methods on it and there is no returning. But sometimes that, that led to things like people were using the IO as a parameters with a data container, <laughs> then modified the things in the action on the data container and then that IO uh, data has been changed with in the action with this technically correct because you're importing the object but of course semantically totally uh, confusing that you have an importing object which is carrying returning data and meanwhile you, you have a clean way of doing that um, with the ET data and the structure of ET data is as you see here it's just generically defined as an index table is uh, again defined in the action definition as importing parameter structure yeah yeah uh, no, as, as exporting parameter structure. Yeah, yeah. You have exporting. it if you say that. Yeah, uh, currently it's disabled. Specific yeah. exporting parameter type. Mm -hmm. Yes. And you can define it's just load data that you return, or uh, specific type with a subset of the data are completely different. Then you have the you you may have asked where does that where that generic importing parameters uh, that we talked about, which were used as data containers in the sometimes also, that is the importing parameter structure. That is the input to the action. And then... Can it yeah. be a deep structure? No. As it's not persisted, it can be... It's yeah. derived to data, basically, so it can be <laughs> anything, including a That's container to put data really back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. It was just a, no, it was an object yeah. uh, with member table. Yeah. Yeah. Was, well, kind of good. Yeah, indifferent to actions which are explicitly executed, we have also determinations. Perhaps we maybe just to finalize the actions. I think one thing that can be easily forget okay. is the node category assignment. Because if you create an action, maybe we should very briefly mention what node categories are. Yeah. Okay. To, to node <laughs> categories are different flavors of one node. You could say. Um, you can have different <clears throat> semantics how you are using one node. And with node categories, you can change the behavior of um, actions, determinations, validations of the data. You can uh, disable, for example, node attributes on basis of the categories. So you can have multiple categories. For example, you could have a main item and a product item and a truck item, whatever, box item. <laughs> and then uh, dependent from the node category, you can enable different areas of the node structure, which can be then changed within this node structure. And you can also enable different validations, which are checking the consistency of the node. And you can uh, enable different determinations, which have to run and you have to, uh, you, you can enable or disable different actions which should be allowed on this node category. So, different flavors. And we are not using it. In TM, not so relevant. We have just one place where we are using node categories that's on the attachment folder. Okay. But just as side remark. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's you understand the concept. And that's why you can and have to assign an action to a node category. In our case, it's always one to one, so it sounds a bit stupid. But that's the background. Uh, and if you're not that. setting this flag, the action is not available and cannot be executed. Exactly. One of the yeah. nice mistakes that beginners do, 
customers and partners for getting to set this. I think meanwhile we convinced yeah. uh, our Bob friends that per default, if I only have one category, that per default it is yeah. set. I think meanwhile they have some mercy uh, <laughs> with the beginners, uh, but yeah, but I'm not 100% sure. Okay, property change trigger, maybe. Yeah. Good. So now we had our action call that has been uh, executed for eight of, out of the ten uh, freight orders. One was lost because of Dirk, one was a freight unit. But for the eight, we did some changes, right? And so when we have a change and the action is completed, uh, we come into the determinations. Yeah. Right. So, what what is a determination? Yeah. In short, a determination is an internal calculation or a determination of some additional information. As you know, in, at SAP we have a lot of customizing. Also mm -hmm. in TM we have a lot of customizing. For example, when saying that we want to have uh, want to create a new freight order, and we don't know what exact freight order type we want to use, we can just say we want to use the default type. And default type that is determined by determination on root level, which is just fetching the one customizing entry which is flagged as default. And um, so here we have it. Or for example, we have on all documents administrative data, um, the last changing user and the last change date, for example, is always updated when updating a business document instance. Yeah, maybe that's a very good example. So I that's a better example. I have yeah. a good starting point. I have a thread order. I save it, and then always the last change user should be updated with the last change date. Well, Plus, so if it's, it's B, and then yeah, <laughs> and all that burned was the point. <laughs> and uh, but, and as we mentioned, it should happen at save. So it is there must be a place to define when should that determination be performed, and that is exactly. But you can define pretty granular per node, per determination. So remember, again, we are now on a certain BO node, in our case now on the root node, and we have quite some, maybe too many, uh, determination here, determinations here defined on that root. And every determination should, that's our TM pattern, uh, be processed as different point in time. So our pattern is, um, at least the general pattern, that every node and every change time, and what that is, come in a minute, is at one determination. For example, we have the root after create determination, which is to AC. AC yeah. That one should run if a root node is created. And exactly then. And we define that here, the request nodes. So if a node is created, node instance is created, then this determination should be called. And the second, I think, important piece is when. One thing is that it's a create, and the other one is do I do it directly after modify? Or in, case, yes. in our case, huh? after create, that is direct the modification, I want to do it. Um, for example, that admin data determination should run um, for every created or updated uh, root uh, document. After delete, it doesn't make much sense. Yeah, I could do it, then. but it would be pretty deleted then after. <laughs> um, but not after modify, because there might be another change, another change, but 
before safe and finalizing. So what you see here is actually the different points in time of a bot transaction that it can pass through. So what you combine here is actually a triggering condition, what exit, what triggers the determination execution, and what is the point in time. Both together define when this exactly is executed. And we have here a short cycle, the after modify cycle, which are the uh, top two time points here, mm -hmm. after modify and after validation. Then we come into the safe cycle. Which starts here with a white flag, give yeah, up. Before safe, uh, before the consistency was checked. Then before safe finalized, that's more uh, common for, for safe determinations. Mm -hmm. Um, before safe draw numbers, that has a history that we have this special point in time that's for drawing document numbers because by design we had the rule that we must not have any gaps between document IDs, document numbers. Not only there. As far as I know, FA, FAD or you can, you can easily FDA has uh, also this rule. Right? Yeah. For, for example, Italian Italian customers are not allowed to have gaps in between their numbers of certain documents. So that would be the point in time in the transaction where you pull that number from the number range and assign it to the document before it goes to the database. Yes. Numbers can be uh, surprisingly uh, also relevant. I mean, that is one example that for like for invoices, they must have a sequential exactly. numbering that you don't have surprising gaps uh, where you had an invoice, but you don't have it in your books anymore. So that's the background. In TM, our documents are not that critical here, so that's why we, we, we do have in gaps some parts, in some parts. In some part, I, I okay, in some parts. Yeah. Freight orders. Freight orders, also forwarding orders. Uh, we, we don't have uh, necessary sequential number because that also has performance um, uh, drawbacks. Uh, but you can make sure that you have that here. And that's why if the finalization fails or the validation and fails, you don't want to draw a number. So um, that, that's why it's a separate uh, point in time. So the draw number uh, time point is the time point when everything is validated and the document is consistent and you're sure you will be able to save it. Exactly. And then uh, just a unplug of the computer or so could come in between. <laughs> um, yeah, save, then we have during save before writing data. That is a very restrictive point in time. Um, are we using it somewhere? You could send mails out. Yeah, it's really, so, you cannot modify uh, your own business object from there, for example. You cannot uh, do a modification that dumps, but you could write, let's say, statistics. Uh, that Links into the file system. Yes. Yeah. So really outside your business object. Yeah. And then yes. we come to the, to the point uh, after commit, after fail safe attempt. Um, they were earlier relevant, not relevant now. Because we are using endless transactions and there these time points are not, not allowed to be used because a real after commit is not longer existing. We are then directly in the next after modify in endless transactions. Um, this is relevant if you have transactions which are ending with a safe. And then everything is cleaned up. The session is closed and you are in display mode. That's relevant for, mm -hmm. for example, for message processing. It could be a candidate or something like Message is processed in batch and uh, posted to database. And then you could also do some things here in this after commit. 
points in time or after phasing. Maybe one important detail, um, if I have a determination of, or the difference, why do I have that after modify and after validation? Maybe a few words on that. If I do a determination after modify, it will change my own node or maybe another node. Let's say I, I have my item, I change the quantity, uh, and that will also change the number of sub-items. Uh, so. Now, if I'm in the after modify um, determination, um, it is already, if I do it there, then the modifications I did for the other items are not processed in, the, in, a, in another determination uh, again, because for, for Bob, we always have the so-called dead while cycle, determination, validation cycle, and every determination is performed exactly once. Yeah, so I'm, I'm in my item determination and maybe the stop, let's not take that example, my stop determination already has been performed. We come to that determination dependency uh, in a minute where I define the sequence of determinations. Um, and now if I change from the item to stop again, nothing happens. So the determination on stop is not processed again if I do it after modify. If I do something in a determination that really needs a determination on the other object again, then I have to do an after-validation determination. bit complicated, but that, that's why I have the differences. Uh, do I start a new round, so to say, or uh, do I um, just finalize my context? And what I do here is just kind of self-contained, so no follow-up action is required. But if I detect in the determination that I have to create another item, then the after-create determination for that other item should run. And that only happens if I'm in the after-validation. And, yeah, the so determination dependencies. Yeah. yeah very simple. Uh, some determinations have to run before others. And here you can define the sequence. Like the after-create typically should run before the after-modify determination. Uh -huh. Even so, technically, they are both triggered by the same create. But semantically, of course, you would expect the after-create to, to be completed. And then the modification part comes. Yeah. Comparable to the subscription sequence, you could yeah, define yeah. finalized dependency. Determination. What else do we have? Uh, we have, as for the actions, write or read only determinations. Write means you can define write nodes, and then the framework will create locks before the determination is executed. That is very important for determinations because if a determination is returning a fake key, then this means that the transaction is lost, more or less. There is one chance to, to, to recover it, but in general, it can't be saved anymore because determinations are unfailable for the framework. Um, the determination will try to execute all failed determinations when saving the transaction. And if it goes then through, then everything is fine. But that's the only attempt to save the transaction. Yeah, it's uh, basically in a determinate. That's why if you have to handle locking, you, you need to yeah. typically do it with an action. Because then, as I explained earlier, the action is lock safe, so to say. It's checking before, and in the determination, it will just, in the middle of processing, uh, find out, oops, It's a modification, and I, I cannot do it. Everything uh, is, is gone. You even have that strange, what is it called? We, we have to have that dump. Uh, okay, then ends in a 
very generic dump, but that's to make it short. If you have to handle locking, you shouldn't do it from the determination, but you have to do it externally. And wherever possible, define write nodes for determinations. Yeah. Because if uh, locking is not possible for a determination, mm. which is defined via write nodes, the mm. framework will not execute the determination, and then it will not fail. And so. But it's also not done. Yeah. You're so. safe. <laughs> I guess it's not dumping then. Yeah. And then maybe we can hurry up now a bit. It's running yeah. a bit late. Um, you again have a class with a very similar interface to the action. Yeah, we can shortly click into it. Yep. Um, as said, uh, determinations are implementing the interface IFFRW determination. They have three methods, check delta. There you can, you are not forced to, you must not. or You, you don't have not. to. You need not, you don't have to yeah, yeah. implement it, but you can implement it if it is cheap and only then uh, to find out if anything relevant changed for this determination. If no information was changed, that would influence the results of this determination and you can find it out easily, then you should, uh, you have here the chance to remove keys. Uh, the keys, instance keys from the IT key table with which the execute method is executed later. Yeah, you can, yeah, you are called with all the node keys, instance keys, all the items that this uh, um, determination would now process and then you can Remove and even you add, could, but you could even add. Yeah, uh, but typically influence CTP. Yeah, but typically you would remove some of them. But really, it as Dirk said, have to be careful uh, because if you do that, uh, if you read the current and before image here in there, and you do it anyway in the execute method again to detect the change, then you don't really save time. You have extra coding. So there are cases where that makes sense. The same thing with the check method. Yeah, where you say, okay, I, I have a lot of cases where I can easily detect that it is not required. For example, cancel documents. Huh? It's a good one. Nothing is, there's only few determinations that you would really do for cancel document. Then it makes sense and it's easy to find out. So that can be done in check. But uh, for the rest, um, it's, yeah, should be handled. careful. Because typically you anyway need the current and the before image. Uh, and then if you do it twice, once in the check delta, and then again in the in the execute method, there is uh, little value. Yeah. Except for the locking part. So uh, it wouldn't, if you uh, remove something in check delta or check, then Bob wouldn't lock it and you wouldn't run into that uh, problem. Yeah. Yeah, the check method does the same, but is from the semantics not related to deltas. Mm -hmm. So... There could be any any circumstances, for example, the cancelled document. For cancelled documents, this determination is not relevant. Exactly. This you would then find out in the check method. And then uh, the execute method is executed. And if you look to it, it looks exactly the same as for actions. Except with for... the difference that we have here, no ET data. And no parameters. And no parameters. Because it's not called by somebody, so it doesn't make sense to have a parameter. And it's... There's nobody interested in the in any returning data except for messages and fail keys, and that's why there's also no way of returning it. So that intention of the determination is to complete the data that we mentioned. Yeah, so something like I entered a product ID and so I or a product key is come from somewhere, so I want to also read the ID and all the master data from the product 
um, I entered a location ID and I want to derive the YATA code, etc. Uh, so that kind of completing uh, a document performing the consistency of a document. Yeah, exactly. We have now still validations and queries on our list. Yeah. We should describe. Um, and then we didn't even have the consistency proofs. Yeah. Uh, but maybe let's complete that, at least the validation and, and, and query piece. Yeah. Bye. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So determination, is that so far clear or are you tired enough to don't have questions? <laughs> no, it's not. Yeah, okay. Determination is completing data. And we, we talked already about the dead val cycle, determination, validation. So every time our action is changing data on the root node, then the determination is called because that date has, this node has been changed. And after that, we have a validation. That is validating the data, Dirk, or what is it doing? Yeah, it's checking consistency more or less, or it is checking if actions are allowed to be performed. That are the two flavors we have for validations. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that you find in the next uh, folder here in mm -hmm. the um, node elements uh, section of the BO model. If you look, for example, to the bio root action, These yep. are uh, root action actions on the root node, which need to be validated before they are started. So if you want to execute an action, you have a possibility to prevent that this action is executed by implementing a validation on top of this action. For example, you could write also an action on the safe action, which is always there. And then you could do some pre-safe checks For example, if the instance is not consistent and could then um, return fake keys for all instances where you know, okay, they will not be able to be saved. They are not ready. And then, uh, for example, just the three consistent instances are saved and the others are skipped. This could happen. Would be one use case. Let's say a very simple uh, use case for validation uh, is I entered an Node, also, yeah, now if we come to node validation, so that's the action validation, we come to node validations, uh, like the node consistency here on, what is it, PO, we'll come to that later. Uh, node consistency. That one, okay, that's now already kind of refactoring topic, but that one, and there's a there will be a follow up uh, podcast because we did some changes to our uh, validation structure with 9.3. Four, three, three, three. Uh, we, we do the extra podcast on that. Very short. We have uh, a validation for the data on the root itself, on the node itself, and then uh, we always also have like a context validation. So that's an example. I um, uh, I changed a certain stop. Yeah, so, so look, I changed the time on one stop. That is in the context of the stop itself. It is okay. But now, accidentally, I arrive um, before I depart. So I also have to consider the complete the consistency of the complete document or even cross-document. And that is then what we would do in a BO consistency. But that, I, I, we wouldn't go into the details now. But basically, you have a, a check. And a very simple example is I enter equipment type and group. And there's a customizing where you can assign 
allowed equipment types to equipment group. And if that customizing does not include your entry, then this is a invalid entry. So and equipment type as such. And fake key. And then you know, okay, that's not, not consistent. That's not allowed. So validation only can return. And maybe that's a good starting point. Can only return. Um, if you look into the interface, messages and failed keys. And it doesn't even have an IO modified, so it cannot modify, it cannot legally uh, uh, modify uh, BO data because the only job of that validation is to say it's okay or not. And that the way of doing it is most importantly failed keys. That's a technical way of saying it's not okay. And then the user way of saying it, and it should always go together, is the EO message. So if I have a failed key, I always should have an error message in the interface here, in a validation, at least. Again, the principle of uh, whoop, oh here. Uh, when is this validation performed? That is very similar to the determination. So I can, for a node, uh, define um, when should that validation be performed. In our case, it's create, update, end, check. So if I press the check button, basically. Um, then this validation on this node is performed. That is very similar to the, um, uh, the determination concept, except for I don't have write nodes because validation does not write data. So I only have triggers, which is the request node. So what change is the relevant one? And um, what do I read? But that is really, yeah, it's we just modeling. Exactly. Yeah, and the node category assignments. Again, remember, in principle, we could have different node categories for a node, which we typically don't have. But that's why you assign it here. And that's, again, if you don't do it, nothing happens. It's very fast, but yeah. ineffective. And you have a validation dependency, so also validations can be in a certain sequence. Anyway, I think they are always, all of them are called. It's not if I have one validation first and then the other one, and if that one fails, I think still, even if, if validation one returns failed keys, the subsequent validation is called with the same keys again. It's not kind of reducing the keys to be checked, but it's always all keys, right? Okay, that's just an, I'm only 80% sure. You should try yourself. Uh, yeah, so you can define the dependence sequence here, but typically it shouldn't matter. The only thing is, um, well, okay, no, that's specific to to our BO uh, validation refactoring, and we come to that in the following podcast. Um, what's the next? Uh, queries. I have a question yeah. to this uh, root validate well root action you mentioned before. Uh, is there a reason why not the action itself should do the validation? Is it a separation of concerns, or I mean, in principle, the action could Check before it runs whether it should. What it does, if I'm not totally wrong, is calling the field control and, uh, uh, yeah. Basically, what this action validation does is making sure if I have an external caller. Okay, coming back to the action properties. Huh? So we, we have an action which can be enabled or, or disabled. Um, However, if um, and, and the UI is also considering uh, those actions uh, correctly. However, as mentioned, if I have an external caller, 
uh, this is ignored, so I, I can do it. For actions, we are a bit more conservative than for the modifications. In the preparation of the action, we read the properties, if this action is enabled or not, again. And uh, if it's not enabled, that's a failed key. So that is what we do specifically in the action validation to prevent calling an action which is disabled by field control. Because as mentioned, there is nobody, if, if we are not checking it, uh, Bob is not doing it because we deactivated that Bob feature. That's why we have to do it ourselves. That is what we do in the action validation. And we, we, yeah, no, no, that, no, that's enough. For the, for the and this one should be no, uh, assigned to one, one action. Yeah. It's basically, it's assigned to many actions that uh, action class. Are they not uh, specified? Maybe it's too much for... for uh, no, yeah. category assignment, is there something? No, no. There should be, yes, there's something. Yeah, that's the assignment. Okay, actions. yeah. That's and there you can assign the validation to specific actions. Exactly. Uh, okay, so it's still so when, when calling this yeah. action, you can just prevent yeah. the execution of the action. Yeah, there is. One step earlier than yeah. being Locking. within the action. Yeah. And even... Uh, before the would already yeah. be generated when doing the checks yeah. and the action. Uh, I also got a question that's not about validation, it's about um, the service manager, uh, which we have discussed about maybe 20 minutes ago. And I want to know um, when uh, we will use this service manager to achieve data or Okay, so perhaps to round this mm -hmm. session here a little bit up because we are running out of time. Okay. Uh, so, um, missing is one element that's a query. And maybe programming with Bob. Uh, so, how do I, how does it all look from a coding perspective? That is something that we will do then in a follow up session if that's okay, okay for you. So, very briefly, if I'm within my BO model, sorry, if I'm in my validation in my determination in my action, I would use the IO read, IO modify uh, layer to read the data, which is more direct. If I'm outside, so I write a report, I'm the UI, then I have the service manager, which is kind of a different layer uh, that then can be created for every business object. And so the, the interface looks exactly the same. I can call an action, I can do a query, but there are some additional um, steps uh, performed. There's a so-called plugin uh, uh, that is performed uh, or which sits in the middle between the service manager and the BO. Example, most famous example is the authority check. That's a generic thing, not modeled within the business object, but before, because I, 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 it's a generic uh, concept. And it's done the same way for all the business objects, uh, more or less. And to prevent uh, unauthorized reading of, of data, generically, it is sitting in server. However, if I'm reading that same data from within my determination, there is no need to do an authority check because I'm within my business object. The general authorization to perform the action or whatever has been checked by the call, yeah? so somebody calls um, the perform carrier selection from the UI, that goes through the service 
manager interface. Now I, I do my modifications, I read data, I call another action. This one goes through the IO modify. And as this is kind of a follow-up action, uh, it, it, there's no use and it's dangerous to do an um, authority check because what happens if, if, if now the authority check fails, I do half of the action only or not. So that's why that's the main difference, I would say. You don't have that plug-in layer, which is mainly the authority. Is it this one more? Yeah, property handling is active for service manager, yeah. not for uh, internally. Yeah. yeah, it's also retrieving. Yeah. These are the two. Can check the property. Okay. Very last thing, if there are no questions or validations, the queries. So up to now, we, we spoke about modifying data and how to store it, but we didn't talk about how to find the data. And for how to find data, we have queries we have to implement. And queries are just um, a modeled select statement to the database. And there I can also define uh, query parameters, which are nothing else than uh, um, SQL where conditions. That's a what they call the filter structure. The filter structure. Where you SQL where conditions. This is where you basically can define all the field values that you. Yeah. The document ID or um, the sales uh, organization ID or the business partner which is responsible for this or which is related to this document. Is there, then, is there then something else done except building up this select statement and retrieving data from the other way in effect? So, because you could do this in your own program or just have some there is more? static interface also. There is uh, more specifically if I have a result structure. I mean, we have two basic kind of queries. One bad one, uh, which only returns the keys. Do I have an example here? No, it's always QDB. It's always good one. Planning attributes, perhaps. No, obsolete. Yeah, it's an obsolete one. You see here, I only have the query class defined and uh, the input, but no output. And then the output is just a table of keys. And with the keys, I again have to read the data. For that, you could say, yeah, it's just a, it can be defined very generically. The only thing is, of course, you have to interpret the uh, filter structure. Yeah, because that can be something like uh, um, uh, a planning horizon. Yeah? In planning, for example, we have a planning proof where you say, I have an offset of 30 days. Of course, you cannot just post offset of 30 days to the database. You have to convert it into a meaningful query attributes that is done by the query class for the uh, so let's kind of evaluating the input and and finally coming to the SQL query and uh, for the QDB queries uh, your which are the ones which are returning data also by also have result structure which is more than just keys uh, then you can also Enrich that. Now, for example, a POWL, you don't only have you not only have data from the root node, but you have data from different nodes in the result. I have a select on a friend order, but as a result, I don't only get root attributes, but I get stop attributes like uh, locations. I get item attributes like uh, booking ID, by uh, example, a voyage ID or something. So it's kind of an extended select statement. It's and it's extended select statement and also some post-processing for a select statement. And you need not to take care. So um, 
We have some queries which would, if you would execute them full-blown, uh, do a select statement with about 10 database tables being joined together. Okay. And um, since this is the um, 0.00 promil case, <laughs> um, we are interpreting which uh, filter structure attributes we are using in the current request and which uh, result attributes we have to uh, to return to the consumer and then reduce the select statement to the minimum that is really necessary and then we are most in most cases ending up in two or four tables which are joined and not more so something that is handleable yeah okay. and also in our i mean that's now us but uh, in our we have a query superclass where you can for certain query really just define the mapping so where this attribute what is the database table, where it comes from, what is the relationship to the host, Biono, and all the joins, etc., uh, are, are done automatically by the class. So it's kind of a metadata that you only define for the query. Yeah, okay. And and you don't have to do that again and again yourself. Of course, it. and if you do it just that way, then it's like a generic uh, static method in a way. Okay. And what's always also relevant for queries is... Um, Validated instances need, yeah, selected instances need to be validated against uh, user authorizations. Oh yeah, okay. And this can significantly reduce the set of instances that are returned. Yes. yes. And now you have uh, the possibility that you just say, okay, we are selecting just 500 records, then check authorization and return the rest to the consumer. But this gives you not the guarantee that you return anything. To the consumer. If yeah. you're um, not lucky, <laughs> then you're returning nothing. But on database, you would have 500 documents, but yeah, they're coming yeah. later. Okay. And this is also taken care of by this class. That is then uh, fetching the next package until and everything was was uh, examined or um, the 500 documents were collected. But of course, you could also do it yourself, but you don't have yeah, to. Yeah. yeah. So that comes to why also. I mean, knowing the database uh, in both contexts is a nice thing, but uh, you, you shouldn't need to. I mean, of course, it makes sense, for example, if I do a certain select, still it is a database, and I have to check if there is an index on that field in, in the database, it's fast or slow. That kind of thing to understand the data model makes sense, but you sh more or less never ever should do a select on, on the database. And specifically, it's a totally no-go if you do it from a like, determination or so then it's really, really bad because you get the database state. Meanwhile, it might be changed. Locking considerations we discussed um, before, so that, that's a no-go. But even if you have a report or so, there, there might be reasons to do it, but uh, there are very few uh, scenarios where you would direct select or update. Um, then you really must know what you're doing. Very well, if you do a normal report or something, you do it with a query, you're on the safe side, authorization check is included, uh, enhancements are, are covered, etc., etc. Okay, so I assume that also the buffer is considered then. But I didn't know. In a query? No, no, by the queries, yes. No, the query, no. the query really goes to the database. Okay. And it also, that's a hope, it's not filling the buffer. Um, the... Okay, that really depends a bit what kind of query you, you do. But example, you have a work list, uh, POWL. You read all the data, but you, typically you only work on few instances. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So 
you have a selection of 200 thread orders, uh, then you pick the two uh, which are relevant for you and you work on them. If you now would fill the buffer of all the instances with all the data, the buffer is huge and it makes it slow and the memory consumption goes significantly up and we had that. That is the reason, last detail for the queries, that's a very good idea to have the attributes used in the authority check should be part of the result structure of the query. Because then the authority check ha doesn't have to read any additional data. If, if you have an attribute which is not part of the result structure, but part of the authority check, it needs to read that node, the root node again, and then it is in the buffer. Because unfortunately, that's a bit of a problem with Bob. You cannot read data without filling the buffer with a retrieve. With a query, you can, but um, if you're in a transaction, authority check is within a transaction, you have to use the retrieve to get the latest state. So that's why um, it's a bit of a detail, but the result structure should be the input then for the authority check and completely cover it because you don't want to fill the buffer really. Okay, but uh, if the instance is already in the buffer, the buffer will be used. No. That one doesn't even touch the buffer. Okay. So if you then go into transaction, let's say what, what could happen is you are, oh, Dirk is the locker always, huh? Dirk is locking uh, my, my thread order still. Uh, and now I go into the POWL. I do a, and he already changed the item or something. Or let's say the description. If I now go, uh, but it didn't save. If I now go into the P query, POWL is calling the query, we would still get the database state and no indication that Dirk is currently working on that one. Yeah. Only if I open the document in edit mode, uh, I would get the information that Dirk is currently blocking it. Okay. So it's really database to UI. Because you don't know whether Dirk will press save in the end. Yes, um, yes, he might still right. throw yeah, away his changes. And Typically, it's a timeout because too many uh, coffees. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, that's why it's really bypassing buffer here. Yeah. Okay, so if we would like to do maybe alternative keys, that's a very quick one. No? But, uh, I would just put that together with associations we haven't talked about. Ah, we haven't yet. talked about associations. You're right. Um, should yeah, we and, uh, transaction concept? Today, perhaps we um, do a part two the next days. Okay. Then we have now um, the first round. Yeah. Maybe very briefly for those that are totally eager, association are de defining, so very short version, defining the relationship between nodes, basically. So I can go from very short example, really only. Uh, I can go from my root, of course, to the items based on um, on our model. Yeah, so we will define we have items below the root node. So there's an association to go from there, there to there, and that's pretty straightforward, right? It's I mean all items, in. but I might only be interested in certain subset of the items, and then I can define a modeled um, association where only a subset uh, of those items are. Returned. That's the idea. And then I can also go to other BOs and sub-elements from dependent objects, but that is then maybe for the details next time. And the difference between the first uh, association between root and item TR is that we have no association class there. It is handled by the box framework. See that, the box. that straight one, the one from the parent to the child, just always there. Mm -hmm. uh, composite uh, association. Composite, yeah, composition. 
while the second association, which is returning just the subset, has to be implemented, of course. And or modeled. There are also ways of um, ways, yes. of modeling it, but that's something for our second session. Yeah. Good. Thanks for your patience. <laughs> I wish you a nice evening. <laughs> Tomorrow's a test, um, but uh, only after 10, so still some time left. Um, yeah, then we have to continue with a part two, huh? looks like. Thanks for listening to part one, uh, only a rough overview uh, of Bob, and uh, we will <laughs> continue with some details. <laughs> next layer, uh, next time. But well, the next time will be about programming with Bob and, uh, and and the finalization of the missing elements. Yeah, consistency groups are also missing. Yeah. Okay. And alternative keys. Mm. Perhaps a little bit status management. We will see. Oh, good. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Bye-bye. Um.